Over the last few decades, travel has become more accessible than ever. Budget airlines emerged, making flying less expensive, and social media platforms, the popularity of travel influencers, as well as access to digital information has inspired more and more people to get out and see the world. While there are many benefits to global travel becoming more accessible, there's also a downside. When there are too many travelers in a place, there can be negative side effects that impact local communities, public infrastructure, nature, wildlife, and the protection of heritage sites. This issue has become so prevalent that there's a name for it. Overtourism. Today, we're going to dive into the reality of overtourism. We'll learn what it is, what causes it, how to avoid contributing to overtourism, and what needs to change to make tourism more sustainable. Here to discuss is Paige McClanahan. Paige is a travel journalist and a New York Times contributor who's based in the French Alps. She reports often on overtourism and related issues, and she also hosts a podcast called The Better Travel Podcast. This is Alpaca My Bags, the responsible travel podcast, here to help you travel in a way that's better for you and for the planet. I'm Erin Hines, travel writer, accompanied as always by my producer, Katie Lohr. We are also on Patreon, where you can support us financially and help us keep this podcast going. Uh, So the link for that is in our show notes. Okay, so Katie, do you know about tourist shaming? I don't know if it's a phenomenon. I don't really know much about it other than I've likely participated in it (laughs) myself. (laughs) I'm going to be looking for you in comments on TikTok to see if you're in there (laughs) doing the tourist shaming. Oh, I'm active (laughs) in the comment section on TikTok. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay, so... I don't think it's a new thing. I think it has always happened. I think it's just become more of a thing because people now have smartphones in their pockets and can just like video record everything and put it on the internet. So I've seen it everywhere. A great example actually is the Iceland travel subreddit. As most alpaca pals know, I'm obsessed with Iceland now, and I continue to read that subreddit actively. There are a lot of ways you can die in Iceland (laughs) if you're not careful. And in the subreddit, people love to document, like people will share photos of tourists that are doing stupid things that could potentially kill them. And recently, I think I sent it to you, I saw a video on TikTok, which was a little closer to home. It was a video of some people in the Niagara Gorge that were getting way too close to the river. They had left the sort of like designated walking path and they were on these rocks really close to the river. And if you are living in Southern Ontario, you know not to do that because it's a very dangerous river with an intense current. In this video, it is a raging river. Like Yes, you can see from the video how dangerous it is. I've also seen on TikTok a lot people posting Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia. Famously, if you are from Nova Scotia or you read the signage around Peggy's Cove, you will learn that the black rocks are super dangerous because they're very slippery. So every year, like multiple people fall in because they venture out onto the black rocks, they slip into the ocean. And once you're in there at Peggy's Cove, it's very unlikely that rescue will be able to get you out because the ocean is so violent. 
And I see videos of like people out on those black rocks on TikTok all the time now. It's like pretty common. And the comment section is just people like shaming them, which I guess is warranted. <laughs> I just don't know if like... I mean, I don't blame yeah. that. <laughs> I just don't know if it's like... I would hate to be filmed without my knowledge and put on the internet. I guess that's the one caveat that I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, especially if you're being filmed and then you die. Like, <laughs> just, I don't know weird. that anyone would post the video if a death was involved. I'm assuming that all these videos we see are people who survived. <laughs> I hope so. I actually think, though, like what's interesting about this tourist shaming thing that's happening like all over social media is it brings up like conversations about like how much signage and interference there should be with dangerous sites that tourists go to. Like actually when I was in Ireland at the Cliffs of Mower, this was like a huge debate amongst the Irish people that I was with. They were saying like some people say we should put up a fence so that people can't get so close to the edge. And other people don't want that because then you're like messing with the natural landscape. It's such a tough call because there's a hiking trail in Algonquin Park that I love. It's the Booth's Rock hiking trail. I know you've done it. And there's a huge cliff face. Same with the Cup and Saucer hiking trail. I took a picture like standing right near the edge because it's cool and Instagrammable and memorable. And honestly, if somebody put a fence up there, I think people would be pretty bummed just because it's kind of just takes away from the majesticness of it all, right? And that's what like fence and infrastructure does to a tourist place that's natural beauty. So I can understand why people would totally be bummed and like not super stoked on signage and infrastructure, like fences and stuff like that around. But that being said, like people sometimes are dinguses and make not smart decisions and that can be very life-threatening, especially not even to like the person who's making the not smart decision, but to the people around them. Like that's the consequence of not being respectful of a place and maybe not being respectful of your own body and putting yourself in dangerous, dangerous situations is that you don't get to enjoy that thing so much anymore and you ruin it for everybody else. But then also on the note of filming people, I saw a video similar to this of somebody who had filmed a fashion influencer and somebody had posted the video of being like, these are some fits that I came across in New York today. And then it was reposted by one of the women in that video. And she was like, listen, I don't really love the fact that you're filming me in these places. If you had just come up to me, I would have happily done like an outfit chat with you but because you filmed me in like my own neighborhood and stuff like you don't know if there's people on the internet like trying to figure out where I am it risks my privacy like yeah I've wondered that about those videos that also being said you also took a really funny video in Iceland of people getting blown away and I don't think you got everybody's permission to take that video either. So <laughs> I will say when I do it, I tried to make sure the person wouldn't be recognizable. Like I tried to like zoom from very far away or take it from behind. But yeah, I don't know. I guess like with the dangerous acts that people film, sometimes I wonder like, Shouldn't you be intervening or maybe like yelling at those people to let them know they're in danger yeah. instead of filming it? I mean, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. Like they absolutely could have been doing that as well. But 
there could be more active attempts to help people. (laughs) Yeah, like what are the point of the videos and the photos, right? It's ultimately to shame someone online. I don't think it's just that, okay? Because it's are they educational? I think they're somewhat educational because to be honest, the Peggy's Cove thing, I don't know that I would have known that explicitly until I was at Peggy's Cove and saw the signage. I had seen those videos before I went to Peggy's Cove last year. So going to Peggy's Cove, I was like in the car with my brother and Lucas being like, we can't go on the Black Rocks. It's dangerous. (laughs) So I literally knew that because of TikTok. But there is signage there. So like, as long as you're reading the signage, you would be aware. I don't know. I think there's sort of like a fine line between like adding infrastructure to keep people safe and leaving like landscapes as they are. I mean, nobody reads signs. Let's be real. I do. (laughs) Well, that's because you're an upstanding citizen. (laughs) (laughs) No, because there's interesting information on them. (laughs) Well, okay. I do think like if you're going to share those videos, at least try to hide the person's face, like film from an angle where you can't see their face or like blur it out. There's plenty of technology now. Like you can blur people out so that a specific person isn't being shamed. Like if you want to use it as an example, sure. But like respect people's privacy. I think that's like the low bar. There's one more point I want to add though that just like popped into my head when we were talking about like adding infrastructure to keep people safe. I find, and this is me like sharing something that people might disagree with. So here we go. Oh no, hot I find take, that people take. get really worked up about adding like fencing and designated paths to places like natural places and while I understand like where people are coming from I don't think that it ruins nature because it in many cases makes nature safer and more accessible I don't feel that it takes away from the experience of being in nature like I think people put on a pedestal the like feeling of being in nature You're still in nature, even if you're on a platform with a fence that's there to keep you safe and to make that spot more accessible to people. So, okay, when you first said tourist shaming, I actually thought you were talking about something else that you had mentioned to me earlier today. Um, And this is something we did way back in the early days of the show, I think our first few episodes. And that is talking about bad reviews. And I know you had something fun to say about this. So... Let's talk about bad reviews. Well, recently I've gotten really into looking up places I've been to and then filtering on Google to the bad reviews, like the one star reviews, because <laughs> I love doing that. <laughs> they are so funny, but like they're also problematic, but they're funny. <laughs> I just have to say, first off, I shared one of these on TikTok and one of the commenters cracked me up. They were like, can you really write a bad review about nature? <laughs> Because this review is about this very famous waterfall in Iceland. If you've ever seen like any material about Iceland, you've seen a photo of this place. It's like a small waterfall that goes over into a stream and behind it is a really famous mountain. And it famously was featured in a couple episodes of Game of Thrones. So this review for this waterfall in this mountain reads... Maybe I don't see the point because I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but this is probably the least impressive waterfall that I've seen in Iceland. <laughs> and like, 
How many stars did they give it? One star. And they're entitled what? to their opinion. I just like couldn't believe it. I was like, this is an incredible waterfall. <laughs> How a waterfall can stoop so low to a one star. They could have given three stars. At least right. give three. I never give less than three stars. Maybe that's just, it's kind of like a policy I have. You have to really do bad <laughs> for me to give you one star. And I would never one star nature. Planet Earth? No. So Paige, you've been reporting on travel for several years, and in a couple of your stories, you cover issues around over-tourism. For example, your work has touched on the challenges that sites like Pompeii in Italy are facing with an influx of tourists. We've talked about over-tourism in a few episodes of Alpaca My Bags, but we haven't ever dedicated a full discussion to it, and we felt like you would be the perfect person to unpack this travel issue with us. Before we dive into over-tourism, though, I wanted to chat first about the benefits of tourism, because there are a lot, and I think it's important in this discussion to highlight them before we dive into talking where tourism goes wrong. So I was hoping you could share with us some of the various ways that you believe tourism can do good and also support a local community in a positive way. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, first of all. And thank you for starting with that question because, yeah, I mean, I think in all of these kind of conversations and all of my reporting about over-tourism, I never want to lose sight of the fact that travel and tourism is really important and hugely beneficial. So I love that we're, we're starting off on this foot. I mean, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the destinations you're visiting, I mean, obviously there are huge economic benefits in terms of the jobs that are created through tourism, jobs that can't really be outsourced, you know, like bus drivers and tour guides and waitresses, hotel reception staff, and also just the the tax income, the tax revenue that's generated for local communities through all of the money that comes through tourism. So economic benefits, but there are also important social and cultural benefits. I mean, we live here in um, a very rural village, a very rural part of France, a little village in the French Alps. And um, without tourism, to be honest, our area would be really, really quiet year round. We would, you know, we wouldn't have like, we have a little cinema, a little movie theater here. We have lots of kind of fun restaurants and cafes, ski piece and stuff. And without tourism, we wouldn't have any of that infrastructure or maybe a few of them, but not nearly as many. So tourism in a rural area, especially can really bring a lot of life and energy to a place that wouldn't otherwise have it. And then environmentally as well. I mean, I think it's easy to think of over-tourism damaging the environment, which of course, you know, is a problem and is something we need to be aware of. But tourism can also really be supportive of conservation. And there are lots of instances of, you know, income from tourism directly supporting conservation and income from tourism giving communities a real financial incentive to invest in conserving their ecosystems. Of course, you know, that said, all of these things, it's all in the how, isn't it? It's in how you're doing it. You know, it's making sure that you're not pushing people off their land by setting it aside for tourists to come and, you know, go on their hikes and take their pictures. So there are so many questions of the how, and that's really where I get where it gets interesting. But I mean, I think, you know, we can't have this discussion without talking about the benefits to travelers, you know, to us as tourists. And, you know, it's hugely you know important for us to have the chance to expose ourselves to other cultures, to people living in other countries, to people with different kind of political opinions from ours, with different socioeconomic backgrounds from ours. 
you know, the value of that is really hard to describe. I mean, and hard to quantify really. Um, but I know for me personally, it's been, it's been huge. And I imagine probably for you as well, Erin, all the travel you've, you've done in your life. Absolutely. And you know, there's no one that I've talked to who hasn't talked about that, about how traveling to a different country had some sort of impact on them. And so I think it's really easy to like overlook that benefit on a personal level of it. And it just, it also just fosters like cross-cultural understanding and exposure, which is very important, especially in a world that is like increasingly globalized. Like it's just this is the way the world is going. And so when people, because, you know, I get trolls sometimes on social media that tell me, oh, you're part of the problem. Like, you should just stop traveling if you believe in this. And fair criticism, but also it's not realistic that we stop traveling. It makes more sense to actually just try to travel in a way that's more responsible and uh, sustainable. So we know some of the main benefits of tourism. So let's dive into over-tourism. Could you explain just in simple terms, what it is. So the most powerful and most effective definition of over-tourism that I've heard is when touristic activity degrades the quality of life of the people who are living in the tourist destination. The other aspect is that, you know, when tourist activity degrades the experience of the visitor, right? So there are two sides of the coin. And of course, I think, you know, there's a priority that we should give to the the impact on the quality of life of the people who are living in that place because it's their home. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned this because I've noticed like even my own travels that you start to see like very obvious signs of it. And some of it is just so in your face. Like I'll never forget being in Barcelona and literally seeing the signs that people were spray painting on the walls of buildings that said, go home tourist. And more recently I saw in a subreddit for Mexico city, someone posted a piece of signage that they had seen. That was this message saying, if you're a digital nomad, go home, like stop buying our properties. And I find that like a really interesting example of like how over-tourism becomes evident in the community because that's people, like local people literally saying this is having an impact. Back in 2009, actually, I was living in Italy, in Venice, and living there was the first time that I found myself like thinking about over-tourism as a traveler, mainly because you could really feel the symptoms of it there. And I hadn't experienced that side before. I had always been a tourist. I hadn't experienced what it was like to live with over-tourism. And at that point in time, like this was very intense. There were a lot of cruise stops in Venice every single day. And so I learned a lot about how the mass numbers of tourists were affecting daily life for local people. Locals would time their shopping trips around when the cruise ships would arrive for the day to avoid the crowds. Like I I often did the shopping for the hostel I worked in and I knew what time I would have to go to be able to just walk like comfortably and be able to pull my trolley of groceries. And then in 2014, I spent several months backpacking around Europe. And that was when I started thinking about how frustrating it was on the tourist side, because I distinctly remember Dubrovnik, Croatia, just not enjoying my experience at all. Just getting there and being so excited to see it. This was the moment when Croatia was becoming very, very popular. And I got there and I was just frustrated beyond belief. Like, 
I don't think I even have photos of that trip because I was just too annoyed that there were so many, so many people. You couldn't, you couldn't enjoy it. So those are two personal experiences I've had with over tourism. And I know you've covered a lot of uh, regions and sites throughout Europe that have struggled with it. So I was hoping you could describe for us an experience of over tourism that you've covered in your work, or maybe just one that you've experienced yourself in your own travels. Well, actually, yeah, I might share an experience from my personal life here. I mean, you know, you gave the example of when you were living in Venice, because here in, in the little village where we live, we live just outside a village called Samoan. During the summer of 2020, we're just kind of, what, four or five months into the pandemic, and people were starting to kind of get out. It was at this sort of lull, you know, when people thought maybe things were, were going to sort of get back to normal again. But in general, people were staying within their own country. Right. And so where we live is actually really well known among French people as a destination for hiking. And we have a beautiful nature reserve just at the end of our road. So in August 2020, when all of France is on vacation, we had traffic jams up our little two lane road that leads to our house that I've never seen before or since. And it would take 30 minutes to drive the mile and a half from the middle of the village up to our house, just because you're sort of stuck in this sort of like bumper to bumper traffic you know, inching your way along. And it was because the parking lot at the end of the road where the road dead ends was full. So like the only way a car could go forward was when another car pulled out and drove down. And for me, that was just such um, a perfect illustration of what I think really is, you know, the heart of so many problems with over-tourism really just comes down to a mismatch between the infrastructure, the services, you know, or the regulations that are in place, these kind of things that we need to kind of manage tourism properly, and the amount of demand for that destination, right? And in this case, there was huge demand for the touristic offering of this beautiful, you know, hiking nature reserve at the end of our road. And it was demand that they'd never seen before, that they weren't anticipating, and that completely outstripped the, you know, the infrastructure that had been built to accommodate tourists. But then it was just this kind of couple of weeks in the middle of August 2020. And then by September, much quieter. And then by October, you know, I can go for a jog there at nine in the morning and not see a soul. (laughs) So I think that's another thing with over tourism is that so many of these issues are really site specific. Yeah. And they're really time specific. You know, it's easy to say, oh, Barcelona, like over tourism, don't go. You know, we can we can get a little bit more detailed. Like it's worth it's worth diving deeper than that. Yeah, I've talked about this on my blog. If you want to go to a city that's that's struggling with over-tourism, go in the off-season because that's a moment when when vendors will benefit from your presence. I also just want to bring up, because it's just so top of mind for me, but your point about like investing in infrastructure. Before heading to Iceland, I was curious about like what state Iceland was in, in terms of tourism, because pre-pandemic, they were talking like publicly about how they were having trouble um, handling the influx of tourists. They're one of the only countries that invested a larger budget in tourism than they ever had before during 2020 and 2021, during the pandemic. So while the world was on travel pause, quote unquote, they were busy investing in infrastructure. And 
it was noticeable. And you can tell that all these things are new. They installed a lot of public bathrooms to keep people from like going off into the woods and doing their thing. There's a lot of very marked paths at sites that used to not have them where people were just like wandering through the ancient moss and such, which you're not supposed to do. Um, there's more park rangers posted at a lot of the like really popular waterfalls and like natural sites that we'd been to. And the other big push was that from a marketing perspective, they're really encouraging tourists now to spread out beyond the Golden Circle, which is sort of the core area that most tourists will go. Their marketing campaigns are encouraging people to go to like regions that are much further flung to try to spread out the density of tourists in the country. And it was really interesting to see that like in practice, because reading about it, I was fascinated. But then like, while we were there, it, it was very noticeable that this investment was happening. Wow, that's so cool to hear, Erin. I actually wrote a story for the New York Times about how I think the headline was like, Iceland prepares for tourism comeback or something. And I want to say this was like, October 2020. So I wrote the story, but I wasn't able to travel there. I think Iceland was actually closed at that point, And the New York Times wasn't going to send me in the pandemic to, um, to go research the story. So I spent a lot of time on Zoom with all sorts of people in Iceland. And, you know, with, uh, oh gosh, um, with someone high up in the Icelandic government, whose position escapes me at the moment, who is describing this um, investment in tourism infrastructure that they were doing. And, and he was also saying, yeah, like the, the huge boom in tourism we saw before the pandemic, it just outpaced us. We just weren't, we couldn't respond quickly enough. And now we have this pause and yay, let's make the most of it to build those parking lots, to build those tourists, to put up those roping off the, the ancient moss. So it's wonderful to hear that you saw that in action when you were there and in the results of that work. Yeah, it's it's really, I think a lot of it too is small details that I don't think a couple years ago I would have noticed those small details about that infrastructure. It's just from reading that, like, I knew to look for it. And yeah, it was, it was very clear. What are other ways that you could tell when a region or a city or a site is moving into the territory of overtourism, where it might be potentially causing harm? In other words, what would you say are the main sort of symptoms of overtourism? You know, I think in terms of symptoms that are like visible that we as travelers or you know visitors can see when we're in a place, if you're thinking about a city, say like a European city, for example, one really interesting kind of barometer is the mix of shops that you see in a sort of a city center. You know, are you seeing a lot of like knickknack shops, shops that sell like phone cases or shops that sell ice cream or like smoothies, you know, the kind of things that one might buy when you're just sort of strolling through as a tourist? Or are you seeing shops like greengrocers and butchers and tailors and laundromats and the kind of retail stores that, that really are there to serve locals. Because when I was doing, um, when I was reporting the story in Barcelona last year, that was really one of the main symptoms that I was hearing from people is the, the change in the mix of shops and how that makes life more difficult for the people who want to live there year round and, you know, less, less pleasant. And it kind of degrades the sense of community. So I would say in an urban environment, that's a really interesting thing to to kind of keep your eye out for. 
And then, of course, you know, kind of as we were saying in natural areas, it's, you know, are you seeing parking lots that are overflowing like we had here? Are there enough toilets in a place? Are the the paths well marked? That kind of thing. But also just in general, whether in a city or in a natural environment, you know, just pure overcrowding. And, you know, usually it's pretty easy to tell, of course, you know, in a big city, you know, the subway or the metro system is going to be full of people. But, you know, if it looks like the tourists are really contributing to putting something over the edge, then that would be a pretty obvious visible symptom of overtourism. So those are obvious symptoms of overtourism that I think even tourists can pick up on. And I'm curious about the more subtle impacts as well. Can overtourism impact maybe the culture of a city or people or, well, you mentioned it a bit, the livability of a region? What would you say are the like unseen symptoms of overtourism that we might not be able to pick up on? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question. And it makes me remember, actually, when I was in Barcelona last year, um, to report this story, I spent a lot of time with a woman named Mar Santa Maria Varas, who is both an architect and an urban planner and a native of Barcelona. She grew up right there near the, the old city of Barcelona. And she said, in terms of the less visible symptoms, she talked a lot about the availability of affordable housing. She still manages to live with her husband and their little boy in the city center, but so many of their friends have moved out to the suburbs because um, because of gentrification, which you know this is controversial. Airbnb disputes this, but some studies have found that Airbnb is contributing to um, gentrification in Barcelona and other cities. And also in terms of this change in the retail mix that we were talking about earlier. And she was telling me how when she was a little girl growing up in Barcelona, she could walk through the middle of Barcelona from one end to the other. And her parents weren't worried about her because that they knew they knew all the shopkeepers. And it was such a community sort of feel. And when you lose that sense of like the shopkeepers looking out and being the sort of the guardians of the public space, now she's not comfortable with her little six-year-old boy, you know, walking through the middle of Barcelona because there isn't that sort of social infrastructure anymore that they used to have before tourism became so big in Barcelona. I mean, so we have the overcrowding in public spaces, which is more visible, but in the context of Barcelona, especially, you know, the unseen impacts would be gentrification, availability of affordable housing, and this the sense of kind of the spirit of the, the public space and the, the sense of kind of community um, in the city itself. It's funny, a lot of those, I think, translate also to Toronto, where I'm based, because Airbnb has been a massive complaint here, and, and there's been legislation around it, because it it led to a lot of shortages of like housing that would, would be very important to the infrastructure of, structure of Toronto. There's a lot of condos sitting empty that just like have no one to live in them because they've been turned into Airbnbs. So this was a question actually that Katie brought up to me, and I think it's a really interesting one, and I kind of touched on it already when I was mentioning that um, when I went to Croatia in 2014, Croatia was becoming very popular. It was becoming the trendy place to go. And I actually wrote about this on my Instagram recently. This summer, I'm noticing it's Greece. Everyone is in Greece. Literally all the bloggers I know, they're all in Greece. So obviously some of this has to do with like marketing campaigns, like when it comes to bloggers, it's just that like they're being hired to go there that particular summer. But I do notice these sort of ebbs and flows with like places becoming trendy to go to. How does this relate to over-tourism? Like, is that a precursor to over-tourism? Would you say it's a sign already of over-tourism? I'm just curious about how like a trendiness aspect of a destination um, factors into over-tourism. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating question and a really important one to kind of try to get our heads around. And I think, you know, if we go back to what we were saying before about over-tourism being about kind of a fundamental mismatch or unbalance between the infrastructure services and regulations that are in place to manage and sort of govern the presence of tourists in a place and the number of tourists who are coming And when we think about a place like Dubrovnik, which all of a sudden what Game of Thrones comes on and makes it, you know, hugely popular and the people in Dubrovnik, you know, the local government people in Dubrovnik did not see this coming. And, you know, suddenly this huge wave of tourists outstrips their capacity to manage those tourists sustainably. I think it is really interesting and worthwhile to pay attention to those trends because they can be precursors to this mismatch between what's on offer and what's what's flowing in and you know if we're trying to think about okay what causes those influxes because i think it it really is an interesting question an important question and it can be so many things i mean in the case of barcelona the huge influx in tourists they started to see um really started with the olympics in 1992 and it was really a very um explicit decision by the government to market itself as a tourist destination to put barcelona on the map as one of the cities that you need to go to when you come to Europe. You know, in some cases, it really does start with the governments. The same in Iceland. Iceland launched this huge campaign after the the 2010 eruption of the volcano. Like, they were going for it. They went all over social media, inspired by Iceland, you know. So in, in some cases, it does start with government. In other cases, it's a Game of Thrones phenomenon where it's like, whoa, who saw that coming? And in other cases, maybe it's, you know, an influencer. I think of like, you know, Justin Bieber in his video and I, and, you know, an influencer or something like causing an influx of, of visitors. But I think it's really interesting to watch what's driving those trends and to understand them. And then, you know, to the extent that governments will be able to kind of see it coming and predict it, you know, maybe that will give them a little bit of a heads up to be able to prepare for the tours who are coming and minimize any negative impacts they might get as a result. Mm-hmm. I've actually read that also, especially in Europe, budget flights have driven a lot of it as well, especially, and this was a factor in Iceland too, because they introduced the um, layover with Iceland Air. So if you fly Iceland Air between North America and Europe, you can have a free layover in Reykjavik for, I think it's up to five days and they still offer this. But a couple years ago, this was like a huge promotion and tons of people were doing it. And that's when I started noticing Iceland becoming like a really notable destination. And just like with in Europe, knowing people that live there, like my family in Holland, they fly to different destinations throughout the summer, no problem for like 20 euros. And I was reading somewhere that Barcelona, that that was considered like one of the factors because they introduced these flights and there was no cap on how many could show up in a day in the city. Do you know anything about this, this aspect of the issue? You know, I don't know specifically about that issue in in Barcelona and the you know, any capping or you know, lack capping or lack thereof of flights. But I do know that at the moment, there's a plan to expand the airport in Barcelona. And the the mayor of Barcelona is not happy about this. But because the airport lies outside of her jurisdiction, there's nothing that she can really do about it. The same with the harbor in Barcelona that welcomes all the cruise ships. The harbor is technically not under the city's jurisdiction. So, you know, and, you know, the people who are kind of struggling with the with the negative impacts and the people who are benefiting from the positive impacts, you know, when those two things don't line up, it can be challenging. But in, in terms of 
kind of cheap flights in general. Yeah, I feel like there was this phase, you know, I don't know, five to 10 years ago, where suddenly we had this explosion of, of cheap flights. And, you know, people were just sort of like, okay, let me go on to kayak or whatever and find the cheapest, you know, where do I want to go this Friday? What's the cheapest deal? Let me book it. You know, I think there was like a period that where that was that kind of thing was really common. And sure, I could see how that could have easily led to, um, you know, surges in visitors that cities weren't necessarily prepared to welcome. Katie, as you know, travel for me does not always go according to plan. Oh, yes, I am well aware. Having made over 80 episodes of this podcast, I know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more. When I ended up in the hospital in Australia, World Nomads provided me with emergency assistance so I could get the help I needed and carry on with my trip. Not only was World Nomads able to direct me to the nearest hospital, but my hefty medical bills were covered under my policy. World Nomads encourages all travelers to be prepared when adventuring abroad. Carry a first aid kit, research local etiquette and customs, learn some of the language, and most importantly, take the time to understand your travel insurance policy and what to do in case you need to use it. If things go wrong on your travels, World Nomads will be there to provide the emergency assistance you need. Benefits, limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get a quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So, of course, today there's another layer to add on to the discussion around over tourism, and that's the impact of the pandemic. I have seen in some circles people arguing that the pandemic like provided a much needed break from over tourism. And I think people were hopeful that there would be like a slow ease back into it. But I think as we're seeing in the news about airports around the world being like completely chaotic, this has not been the case. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, like maybe through the lens of Barcelona or another destination that you've written about, like, do you think that the pandemic has helped to reduce over tourism or we've just kind of reverted back to the state we were in pre-pandemic? In the case of, of Barcelona, I was really struck. Opinions on you know, kind of short-term tourist rentals in the city were, I think, probably even more polarized than they would have been otherwise because of the pandemic, because the people who were earning an income from renting out, you know, a room in their homes had gone without that income for a while, and they were really desperate to get back to it. Whereas at the same time, the people who weren't earning an income from tourism were really enjoying you know, having a quieter city and, you know, not having the wheelie suitcases bumping up and down at all hours of the, you know, the day and night. In that case, it sort of, you know, maybe drove people even to further extremes on their their views on how we should we should go back to um to traveling. But you know, if places are smart, like, you know, Iceland and also like Amsterdam, another another um city that I, I wrote about for the New York Times last year, they're taking steps to during the downturn in tourism to impose new regulations and to, you know, build new infrastructure so that when tourists do come back, they can do it in a more sustainable manner. Well, hopefully we see some results from some places around around Europe, especially because I know it's definitely been quite an issue across Europe. 
So I know from my own research and writing that over-tourism is a pretty complex issue, and it's complicated because, like we mentioned at the top, there are benefits to tourism, so it's really hard to sort of balance the benefits with the harmful consequences. And as tourists, it's tough because we can, of course, make individual choices that help to reduce over-tourism, but a lot of the onus, like we've said, is on tourism boards, DMOs, infrastructure, regional leadership, and in some cases, airlines to shift their practices to create safeguards against over-tourism. From your own reporting and experiences, like what from your personal experience would you say is your biggest concern? Like what is the most top of mind issue when it comes to overtourism that um, we should be thinking about as tourists? As tourists, I think, you know, something that we can be keeping in mind is really being aware of whether we are kind of jumping on a trend, just jumping on the bandwagon and going to a place just because, you know, we've seen... 10 people posting about it on Instagram in the past week. And now we're just dying to go there. And we want to see that one spot and go to that one beach and get that one picture too. Being aware of what's driving our own travel intentions and travel desires. And then just checking and doing our own kind of research to see, you know, whether the place that we're going to is struggling with crowds at the moment. Taking the time to do a bit of research before we go ahead and book a trip to see whether we might be going to a place that's struggling with crowds at the moment. Because, you know, that's going to add to problems for the people there, but it's also probably not going to be such a nice experience for us either. Yeah. I find that that tends to be my driving factor is like, I recognize that it's going to be not a fun experience for me if there's tons of crowds there. But I have to ask you about this point because I was reading about how Pearson Airport in Toronto, which is my airport, so I'm very invested in what's going on there, is a total mess right now. There's been like insane delays and a lot of people are very frustrated with the airport and... um I listened to a podcast where they interviewed some people from around the industry about why this is happening. And they brought up a really interesting point, which is that airlines have been overbooking flights and they're creating more availability for flights for people to book than airports can handle. So this journalist was saying, like, it's really not the airport's fault. It's that the airlines like refuse to bump down how many flights they're actually selling. And I thought about this in the context of overtourism because I thought like, that's like something that a destination might not be able to control so much. Like if there's flights being offered to a place, people are going to book them. I think the other thing is some sites around the world truly are one of a kind places that understandably a tourist isn't going to want to skip. For example, like personally seeing the Taj Mahal was something I dreamed of. It was something like I could not not do while in India. And it was busy, but like I could not imagine not seeing it. And it was truly spectacular. Like it's it's one of my most favorite memories of India, just seeing that for the first time. So yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on how we can navigate this tension of wanting to be responsible tourists, but still having those experiences. Like how can we strike a balance? I mean, from my perspective, I think that the biggest responsibility in terms of managing the impacts of tourism on a given place is the local government in that place. And you know, and that needs to start with the government leaders in that destination really need to be listening and really engaged with their own citizens, the residents of that place. You know, they need to be listening to what, you know, about tourism is making life hard or unpleasant for the people who are living there. And then they need to be responding accordingly. 
and of course, you know, some places are doing this um, a lot more proactively than others. But I think so. I think the first responsibility lies with the local government because they do have the power to, you know, impose taxes, to impose regulations. If it's a bigger government authority, you know, outside a city, maybe like a region or something, to impose limits on the number of flights or to you know increase the airport tax or whatever it is. Like there are real concrete steps that governments can take to reduce negative impacts of over tourism if they're paying attention and you know and willing to you know do something that might actually decrease some tax revenues or something but i think yeah the first and biggest um, responsibility lies with the government leaders but yes i mean you know companies certainly have a role and we as travelers certainly have a role and as travelers we can do our best to make smart choices and to educate ourselves about the places that we're going before we go there and the challenges that those places are facing but we can also, you know, take responsibility for demanding more of our, you know, the companies that are serving us can call out bad behavior or irresponsible practices that we might see from a tour operator or from a restaurant or a hotel chain or an airline. You know, we can use our sort of our voice as consumers to call out bad practices when we see it. But no, I think, yeah, the local governments really um, are the the biggest you know, most, um, most powerful player here, really. Governments listening to their people? Whoa. <laughs> this is just a striking concept. <laughs> Amazing. Well, it is, you know, in, in Barcelona, I'll go back, like, in 2015, Ada Colau was elected mayor of Barcelona. And she really, you know, at that point, public opinion in Barcelona was just, was starting to turn. I mean, there had been some protests and stuff, but they were a little bit kind of off, not fringe, but they weren't super mainstream. But from 2014, 2015, 2016, if you look at, they were doing public surveys of Barcelona residents. How do you feel about tourism? And to be honest, it stayed pretty high. Like people were still pretty pro-tourism in Barcelona, but those numbers did start to dip. And she really responded to that. And that's where we started to see in Barcelona this pushback um, against Airbnb. It really started with the election of Ada Colau in, in 2015. And there are other examples of um, like the government in Kerala in southern India. That's another example of a government that's really responded to local concerns that, you know, in that case, it was pollution of the waterways from tourists who were kind of going boating in the mangroves. You know, they had huge resorts um, on the beaches, but not so many of those jobs were going to people who were from that area. And there wasn't that much like income from tourism that was actually ending up in the community. So the government listened to those concerns and developed some really cool pilot projects and then put them into place. And now they're sort of expanding them across the region. But there are some examples of governments being really responsive to their residents. But yeah, we can we can sort of hold these up and, and hope that other governments will um, will follow suit. When you both mentioned how these trends start from, you know, countries maybe going all out on their tourism marketing. Are they putting the money into the marketing and the infrastructure or are they just putting all their money into marketing and then hoping for the best when people show up? Like, what is the what is the dynamic there? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think first of Iceland, where they really were, maybe they were the, you know, one of the first kind of tourism bubble moments. And actually... The word over tourism, it had been around, it had been used a couple of times before, but it really entered the sort of conversation in 2016 after Skift, the you know, travel media outlet, wrote an article about Iceland in which it used the term over tourism. And it was in 2016 with that Skift article that over tourism really sort of entered the, the vernacular and the conversation. So if we're thinking about 
Iceland, I mean, they put a huge investment in marketing the country through a big social media campaign starting in 2010. But at the same time, they were investing in infrastructure, but the social media campaign was a lot more successful than um, their infrastructure was was ready for, maybe. In Amsterdam, this destination marketing organization is now a destination management organization. I think it was even, gosh, I'm not gonna, maybe four or five years ago, a little while ago, that they actually completely cut their marketing budget for tourism in Amsterdam, whereas now it's they stopped marketing Amsterdam as a tourism destination. Now they're just using the same money to manage the tourists who come to the city. So I think we are seeing a shift away from marketing and toward management. But then, of course, there are tons of places that still want more tourists, right, coming out of the pandemic. So I guess it's kind of like a bit of a roll of the dice. Like, are you going to get the tourists you're asking for or not? Because you might not. You might market them and they won't come. So who knows? I have always found Iceland such an interesting example because it's a very, very clear one. Like you can really see the correlation between especially social media and the rise of Iceland as a destination. From statements that I've read, like people in Iceland didn't expect the marketing campaign to work as well as it did. So it kind of snowballed, like they, they just lost control of it. So I know I myself over the years have picked up some helpful tips for reducing mass tourism and my own impact as a tourist. Some of the big ones that I try to stick to are traveling during the off season or the shoulder season, especially if I know it's a very popular place. I also always try to practice second city tourism, which is when... For example, if you're going to Amsterdam, you counterbalance that visit with a visit to another nearby city that isn't quite as popular so that your tourism dollars get spread out a little further. Do you have any other tips for tourists, just like practical tips that uh, we can use in our effort to reduce over-tourism? I can think of two things. I mean, one I mentioned briefly before, but I think it it's worth repeating, is just taking the time to do some research on the place before you go. Of course, you know, that means maybe learning a bit of the language or reading a novel from the place or learning about the culture. But it also means, you know, opening up Google News and typing like tourism problem X or like tourism controversy X, you know, your destination and reading about the debate around if there is a debate around tourism in that place and taking some time to familiarize yourself with that and understand kind of the ins and outs of it. Um, so just so that you can have it in your mind when you're there, just because, you know, a place has issues with tourism doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't go, but it certainly means that you should be aware of it. The other point is just, it's just to maximize the benefits of your visit, you know, for, um, for you as a traveler and for the destination, you know, spending your money, booking yourself into a locally owned hotel, eating at locally owned restaurants, buying crafts and things that are made there in that community that really increases your contribution, your financial contribution to that community itself. And then also in terms of your own experience and the benefits that you can bring home and hopefully spread from that trip, do your best to make genuine connections with the people you're meeting. You know, have conversations with your taxi driver, have conversations with, you know, the guy who's selling you, I don't know, some knickknack in the like old city of Jerusalem, like take 20 minutes if he's open to it and ask him about, 
you know, what life is like for him or what his challenges are. Find, you know, you'll always find people who are interested in sort of talking to you and telling them about their lives. And, you know, the more you can kind of engage in a really human way with the people in the place you're visiting, the more, you know, you kind of become attached to that place and you'll follow the news there and it kind of becomes a part of your life. And um, yeah, no, and I think that's really the most powerful benefit of tourism is creating these human connections across cultures. So in addition to doing your research on the downsides, you know, make sure you invest in maximizing the benefits of your presence in, you know, this foreign place. That's such a good point. Well, thank you, Paige. Actually, there's one thing I, I have to say, just because it's kind of funny. So Lucas and I, the way that we connected with Icelanders throughout the trip was to complain about how expensive Iceland is because we were surprised because we thought Icelandic people that they must make more money and like that's how they adjust to the prices in Iceland. But we quickly realized that no, they're just as frustrated with how expensive things are. So that was always our segue for opening up a discussion with someone was to like complain about the price of something. Yeah. You, you see, finding that like shared human connection. Everybody yeah. hates overpriced items. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Paige. It's been really awesome to chat with you. And uh, I've learned a lot from this discussion. And I think there's a lot of, of great takeaways that I myself can take from this combo, but hopefully our Apaka Palace can take as well. So before we let you go, where can people find you, hear you, read your work, share your links? Um, yeah, if people want to learn more about me, um, I encourage you to check out my website, which is pagemclanahan.com. I apologize for my last name, but I promise it's phonetic. And you can sign up for my newsletter, Iceland Once a Month. And um, I'm actually researching a book that's going to be published in a couple of years. And I'm doing a lot of travel for the book at the moment. It's a book about the tourism industry. I think of it as sort of like a smart analysis, smart, fun, and engaging analysis of tourism um, in about eight places around the world. So yeah, pagemclanand.com. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, I hope you get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.